Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening, and happy solstice season. I want to mention how grateful I am to those of you who have subscribed via Patreon. Your financial support is both incredibly encouraging and necessary in making this podcast possible. If you value this podcast and would like to support it, you can subscribe as well, and I'll include a link to our Patreon in the show notes. But also, a simple review with one positive word and five stars on the app that you use to listen is extremely helpful in getting the word out and helping the ideas that we discuss here filter out into the world of ideas through those algorithmic gatekeepers. It takes less than a minute to leave a review, but the impact is immense. So it may be one of the most efficient ways to do something ecologically beneficial this year. And I really thank you for doing that. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wines. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to realize my vision of a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. You can learn more, sign up for the wine club or email list, and buy wines at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. And if you enter the code OWP for Organic Wine Podcast at checkout, you'll get 10% off from now through the end of 2022. My guest for this episode is Stephen Thompson of Analemma. Analemma is a winery located in the Columbia Gorge AVA in the Columbia River Valley in Oregon. Stephen views himself as a vigneron with a holistic perspective that sees winemaking as a year-round practice that begins in the vineyard. Stephen and the Analemma team have practiced biodynamic regenerative farming since its inception, and the entire farm has been certified as a biodynamic organism since 2017. I think you'll love Stephen's soulful approach to farming that sees the interconnectedness of each aspect of an ecosystem. We dig into the seldom discussed aspect of farm aesthetics and how important it is to farm beautifully, not just ecologically. Stephen talks about a unique way that they approach terroir at Analemma by interplanting and creating a sort of vineyard infusion. And we discuss his process for making pied de couves for starting fermentations naturally. Stephen reminded me that we can create a wine culture that is more than just functionally ecological and commercially sustainable. We can create something that is beautiful, that feeds our soul, and that creates the same kind of sensory pleasure in the farm that we expect in the glass. Enjoy. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for being here and, and talking with me. It's great to meet you. Uh, thank you, Adam. It's, it's a pleasure and offer for this opportunity to to speak with you and explore this topic and subject. Well, let's start right at the top with where are you and what what is what is what you do? What, why you're here? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm currently sitting uh, in the winery, uh, which is located in Mosier, Oregon. It's on uh, an estate property of 52 acres of mixed orchard and vineyard and pasture and some vegetable garden and some wild areas. And uh, the winery is um, a renovated old pole barn. Uh, so um, it's it's a modern facility, um, but the, <laughs> the building was here and the setting is, is a rural agricultural valley uh, that is nestled right along the Columbia River. Lovely, I was gonna ask, where is Mosher? So in the Columbia Gorge on the Oregon side, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the Columbia Gorge AVA is is unique uh, for many reasons, but one of um, the things, one of its attributes is it's a bi-state AVA. So it's, it's divided right. between Washington and Oregon, um, right by the Columbia River. And um, so it, it's, it's very small certainly in comparison to the Columbia Valley AVA or the recently developed um, Columbia Hills AVA to the east. And so we're, we're sitting right at the east slopes of the Cascades. The east slopes. Okay. So I was going to say not the, not quite a little past the north slope. So are you, and Mount Hood is the main cascade there, isn't it? If I'm not mistaken, that sort of forms... Yeah. It's, it certainly is a majestic one. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are several beautiful 
um, dormant volcanoes that stretch uh, from the Canadian border, which would be up around Bellingham, which is Mount Bachelor. And then you move down, you have Rainier, um, Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams. Those are all in Washington. Mm -hmm. And then when you come into Oregon, Mount Hood is the most prominent. And um, and it kind of goes down from there. And Jefferson, yeah. um, Shasta would be in Shasta, Northern California. Yeah. So that You're whole... part of that mm -hmm. erupting edge of the uh, continental plates. Yeah. Are you... <laughs> is it uh are you in the rain shadow of the cascade range at all there or is do you get enough weather i, I imagine it's a bit drier than say the willamette is that true or is that not true it it is true uh, you know both okay. are true actually uh, and you know, coming <laughs> back coming back to the diversity of the ava it's it's amazing um it would just take a look at the the annual precipitation which you asked about on the west side of the AVA, which is, you know, butts up against the foothills of these cascades um, at about a thousand feet or 1500 feet in elevation up to 200, or I'm sorry, up to 2000 feet in elevation. Um, you can have as much as uh, 45 inches of rainfall, mm -hmm. which might be a little bit more than the Willamette Valley on average. Right. But as, as you move east, for every mile, you lose at least an inch of rain uh, <laughs> annual precip. And so wow. where we are in Mosier, which is, um, I'd say, just six miles from the western edge of the AVA, we're down to about 25 inches annual rainfall, which, wow. which would be drier than the Willamette. Yeah. And, okay. and then as you continue to move just a little bit east, another five miles um, east of Mosier, it would be drier still with about 10 inches of annual precip. Um, how long? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So it's just a, it's a dramatic reduction in annual precipitation and a fairly dramatic increase in the amount of sunshine that you get as you move from west. to Right. And that diversity seems like a really beautiful aspect of that valley in that region in terms of you know the agriculture in general but the wines of course because it seems like people have been a little it, it hasn't uh, gotten stigmatized i want to use the word stigmatized with pinot noir like the willamette has um and so it seems like there's a little more experimentation a little more diversity in terms of what's being grown um wine wise grape wise at least um is that true am i is my assessment correct in that aspect uh, you you are correct that is absolutely true uh, that is um one of the highlights of the gorge is its diversity uh and i mentioned the the west to east difference in annual precip and uh, solar insulation and then you also have elevation uh, that plays into it so the columbia river is at about 300 feet in elevation and we have vineyards that are right along the banks of the Columbia River and then we have vineyards planted up to the 2000 foot elevation mark um, yeah. which is which is dramatic in and of itself but um, we we are in the heart of the the path of which the Missoula floods came through the gorge um, so in current day Missoula Montana you know many many years ago that was one that was the location of one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world and it was dammed by glaciers and ice bridges from canada and no less than 40 times throughout history that dam was broken or breached and all that water rushed out through central washington down through the gorge and out to the pacific ocean mm. and when it passed right by here in Mosier and through the gorge, the high level, the high water mark was about a thousand feet in yeah. elevation. So um, I mentioned that because it's really important because a lot of the vineyards that are below a thousand feet and close to the river have are made up of soils that were brought in by the floods. Right. And and those vineyards that are above the thousand foot mark those the vineyard soils are more volcanic in origin and um, not influenced by the floods so that that also increases the diversity of what's here
Yeah, interesting. And it it also, you know, might make one grateful to be growing grapes now there rather than <laughs> <laughs> rather than downstream of a large glacial glacial dam that can break at any moment. We we are grateful that uh, <laughs> Flathead flat Lake in in Montana is much smaller than uh, uh, what was there with the Missoula floods. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is cool. Yeah, I've I've heard about these Missoula floods and the how it's its effect, especially on you know all all parts of Oregon. It sounds like. Uh, for the most part, at least northern, you know, where, where a lot of the wine is happening. Um, so I don't think you've said the name of your winery yet. If you, oh, if... well, I'd, I'd be remiss not to, not to <laughs> promote uh, Analemma wines. Yeah, Analemma, so. right. And can, can you, I, I mean, I know from studying your website, but can you say what that is all about? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the Analemma is a term that's used for uh, the, the sun's trajectory through the course of the year. So as you know, we're moving into winter right now, December 13th in another week or so we'll be at the winter solstice. So the sun is at the farthest point South of its annual journey. And then on the 22nd, it will start to come North again and climax at the summer solstice. And when it, goes through this annual pattern, it forms a figure eight pattern in the sky. And that was, that was what, uh, is referred to as the analemma. And Got it. it, um, if one were living at the equator, that figure eight pattern would be symmetrical. So the oh. sun, it spends, you know, equal times below the equator and above it in the North. Um, um, we, Chris and I found that name and symbol and really appreciated everything that it embodied. It, um, it has, I think, first and foremost, a, a fingerprint of place, you know, everywhere yeah. in the world, according to your geographical location, it, your analemma is unique to, to that specific spot. So just like wine is. So um, Mosul, Germany would have its own analemma figure and, um, central Otago, New Zealand would have theirs and Burgundy, France, uh, would be different right. than Napa, California and, and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. I like that. That is very cool. And it's, yeah, I, I, I was going to refer to it as sort of like an elliptical infinity sign, but yeah. Um, how long have you, how, how old is analemma? How long have you been running this winery? Yeah, Analemma was established in 2010. Okay, um, so you've been at this a little while. Yeah, we've been at this a little while. And um, yeah, my business partner, Chris Fade, and I started it in 2010 with the opportunity to lease and manage one of the oldest vineyards in the Pacific Northwest, um, which is oh. located right here in the gorge. Um, Got it. And then that led to buying some land after a while? Is that what happened? Yes. Yeah, it did. Um, Our intention was to land here in the gorge and and grow grapes and make wine. And an opportunity presented itself to, um, with this old vineyard, to to manage it. And we started that, but we had interest in in our own property. And, you know, about a year to 18 months after being here and and searching diligently through the gorge, uh, we came across a, a beautiful property in Mosier that um, is majority, it's a, it's an orchard valley, a cherry orchard um, mm-hmm. valley with many old farms and families. And um, this family was ready to retire and move on and do something else. And they were happy to um, sell the property to young farmers and, <laughs> and keep the agricultural tradition going. And, and so we're very much, um, part of the agricultural community here. It's just that um, we chose grapes uh, in addition to the cherries that were there and and farm um, according to our values. Nice. Yeah. I, I imagine it's not a, a hot spot for the kind of farming you're doing. Is that correct? It's a little more conventional, the orchards and things around you? Well, you know, I'd say I'd say agriculture in general is more conventional. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very traditional industry. And so change comes slowly. It's often 
um, the patterns and ideas are inherited from from the previous generation. And yes. so that's that's what gives that inertia to, against change, I think. And yeah. um, so we while we do represent a shift in the the way of farming and the style of farming right here um, with this property, I am excited to by how many peers are in the area in the gorge in general that value regenerative farming and 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 focused on organics and um, and so I could you know we are unique in the agricultural industry in general, but I'd say there are a surprising number of progressive minds right here in the gorge that are doing great things in farming. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard that as well. I've actually interviewed somebody who moved was moving there um not too long ago. And then know multiple other people that are moving there with with this uh very ecological intent to what they're doing with wine there. Are you and what what is that? How are you farming your analemma land? <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. Um so it was, I mentioned it was 52 acres in total, mm-hmm. and it was all cherries when we started. So we began to replace the cherries with vineyards um, and just, you know, about three to five acres at a time, um, pulling mm-hmm. the cherries out and planting a small plot or a block of vineyards. And since inception, we've farmed the vineyards biodynamically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but with the cherries, uh, it was difficult to, to make that quick of a transition. So there were, there were a couple of years of where I used some conventional sprays, um, because of, uh, spotted wing drosophilia and other disease and pests that, um, there's zero tolerance on in the cherry market. Got and, it. but as we gained experience, um, we softened those sprays and moved to organics for those. And then mm-hmm. in 2017, the farm was certified through Demeter as, as a biodynamic uh, organism, as the whole farm. So um, and the cherries are included along with the pastures and lavender and everything. So um, it's been part of it's been that transition, um, but our certification represented many years of, of good work uh, prior to that. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I have heard um, cherries have some challenges. Uh, I mean, I'd love to dig into that, but that's probably we could save that for another episode <laughs> and focus on the wine for now. But um, how did you come to be there? What, what's your story? What was your, did you have a previous profession? Were you always in agriculture? What? Yeah. What, how did you end up? Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's an, I think it's a pretty unlikely story, uh, but everyone has a unique story of how they come to wine. And, and mine, mine started back in college, um, believe it or not. I, I graduated with a, cult, a degree in cultural geography. And upon graduation, I wanted to go and learn or see the world that I learned about and visit the different cultures. Yeah. So I looked for a company that could help me do that. And I found Backroads um, based out of Berkeley, California, um, Backroads Active Travel Company. And I was a a trip leader for them for many years um, in the late 90s and early 2000s and uh, was able to travel far and wide around the world offering bicycle touring vacations. And um, it was on these trips where I began to learn about wine and taste wine and become interested in wine. And I became more and more interested and just wanted to lead trips in the wine growing regions uh, so I could be closer to the vineyards. And the real catalyst came in September 11th, 2001, when the international travel industry fell pretty flat um, and sales were down and a lot of us leaders were concerned about our future and what we were going to do. I, I was working in Turkey um, at the time and, and brought all of our equipment um, back to our European headquarters, which was in Chianti, Italy, of all places. <laughs> and um, 
by this time I had started studying uh, books and getting books on my own, reading about wine. And when I found myself in Chianti in mid-September, when everybody was harvesting grapes around me um, and not knowing what my future would bring, I, I jumped in and worked harvest um, and loved it. I absolutely yeah. loved it with a small mom and pop winery there. Yeah. And um, when I came back to the U.S. early in 2002, I began um, studying more intensely and came across quite a few old uh, VHS cassettes of UC Davis courses about how to make wine and, you know, just kind of devoured those. And uh, I was up here in Washington State and talking to a friend about, you know, how, how do I get into the industry? What do I do? And he let me know that uh, the Enology and Viticulture School was just opening up in Walla Walla. Mm. And, and so I went down and interviewed with Miles Anderson, the director of the program at the time. And he just felt like a grandfather to me. It was just so comfortable, the conversation and the dialogue. And he made me feel this is exactly where I needed to be. And so I, I signed up uh, right then and um, was part of the first cohort of students through the Walla Walla Community College Enology and Viticulture. Oh. And um, so the more that I studied, the more that I gained interest and that pushed me to study more. And I, I became more and more interested. And at this time, um, the, the Walla Walla wine industry was burgeoning. There was a lot of growth. So there was a lot of occupational opportunity. And my friend and mentor and dear um, colleague, Stan Clark, uh, suggested I go to the vineyard to learn. He said, hey, if, if you really um, want to learn to, to make wine, you need to learn how to grow it. And the mm -hmm. cellar is quite sexy, you know, with all the barrels and the stainless steel and the wine. but. But really understanding the viticulture and the vineyard side is where you're going to have the biggest impact. And I didn't have any type of agricultural background, um, but I, I believed them and I trusted them. And so I went to work uh, in the vineyards in Walla Walla. Mm. And that was that was the beginning of that leading down to where you are now. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, it's kind of a, a long winded answer there. But um no, no. Working in the vineyards there, uh, I was thrusted into, I was, I was naive, I didn't know. And I, I jumped into a, a vineyard management position, but it was a, a conventionally farmed vineyard. And yeah. so I found myself out there, you know, suiting up and, and a lot of personal protective equipment and mm -hmm. um, spraying foreign material on the vines when I was supposed to be helping them, but I didn't know if I was hurting them or hurting me. And it, it just didn't feel congruent with how I lived the rest of my life. And I started read. I, so therefore I started getting books about um, agriculture and I, I learned more about organics. And so that very next year, um, which would have been 2004, I uh, left one vineyard and went to another uh, where I could manage it organically. And I, it was successful. I did that. And it was also had its own learning experiences um, there. And again, I kept reading and educating myself and I, I learned about biodynamics. And that to me felt true, you know, that that philosophy and that approach was um, it just really enlivening, really lifted me up. I was like, wow, I, this is hard work, but if it's as beautiful as um, biodynamics makes it out to be, that's what I want to do. And nice. I, I kind of committed right there to taking whatever steps I could to learn and grow myself and with that. And that's when I met um, Christoph Barone of Cayuse Vineyards, okay, and um, he was really instrumental in teaching me. Um, and well, he he hired me on as assistant vigneron, and so I got to um, land in a really great place with someone who really knew their craft well and was an excellent viticulturalist, and and also practicing biodynamics. Yeah. Um, well. Okay, cool. Well, this is, I, I mean, I have many questions just to follow up 
on, and I, I want to get into what you guys are doing there at Analemma, but in terms of getting into viticulture, is that your main job now at Analemma? Are you the, 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 you know, the, the, the person in charge of how the, the, the grounds get taken care of, or do you have a lot of seller responsibilities as well? Is it a pretty... Yeah, well, and um, again, under the study in which I've learned uh, the title of Vigneron, Right. Really, uh, stood all out. En- all encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. All encompassing. And so that that's that's the title that I would give myself. Um, and for me, the vintage starts in February when we start pruning mm-hmm. that that is when vintage 2023 will begin and we'll start shaping the vines um, according to, you know, how many buds we leave and what we saw this year. And um I work really closely with a uh, wonderful human and um, very skilled vineyard manager, Ramon Ibarra. And we work together to um, prune the vines and and take care of them throughout the whole season. Uh, and so it's, it's a very special, special time of year pruning. Um, yeah. we, because we're out there together and we can talk about the diameter of the wood, what we saw last year, what worked. It, there's there's a lot of a lot of activities in agriculture that have to be done under a certain time pressure of the of the growing season, but pruning is different. Pruning um, you have time and you have the luxury of working at a little bit slower pace and really putting a tremendous amount of thought into what you're doing. And so it's um, I'm already looking forward to it, you know, in a couple of months and. So yeah, that, that's what I do here um, as Vigneron. Uh, I'll start with the pruning season. Um, he and I share a lot of the, the canopy management work and, and the sprays as well. I'm in the tractor a lot during the season. And yeah. um, during harvest, I'm generally out picking um, the fruit. And then I have a great team in the cellar uh, to receive the fruit and we'll work closely during harvest and monitoring fermentations. And then, um, again, I rely on those guys in the cellar to um, handle the, the filtering and the blending and the bottling. And, and I also um, find myself on the sales side, spending a lot of time um, in the local market or with guests who visit here, uh, sharing our passion and sharing information. And so it's, it's three distinct hats uh, that I wear and, um, it takes me, it takes all of my time. Nice. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and it makes me think, so you're in Oregon, you're in that area where I think there's a lot of, I guess there's a, there's a, an inertia as you, I think the word is you used in, in terms of what kind of wine it's known for, you know, where the industry looks to, looks to go or you know the, the pressure of the industry in Oregon must you know push in a certain direction I imagine and I'm wondering uh, what what as you're opening Analemma are you thinking about how to distinguish yourself how to be you know even if just from a marketing standpoint how to stand out a little bit how to do something a little different and and how did you answer those questions uh, that's a great question yeah it's a it's a crowded market for sure and um, you know, I think our, our, one of our biggest points of difference was just the given about how we were going to farm and, yeah. and our model of being a vigneron and, and certifying or not even certifying, but, but, but managing the property biodynamically was our first commitment. And that has set us apart. Um, and then secondarily, we gave a lot of thought to, uh, the heat units, the soil type, where we were in relation to um, the other varietals that were growing in the gorge and the wines that we knew. And we chose, and, and we also thought that by the time we're up and going, that the wine consumer, general consumer would be ready for varietals that are beyond the norm, you know, of Pinot and Chardonnay or Cabernet and and such. And so we were looking to plant the property with unique varietals that could open the door of opportunities and allow to broaden the conversation about what wines 
could be grown in the U.S. And, um, uh, you know, I'd like to credit uh, Nate Reddy and um, uh, Raul Perez and, you know, Pedro Guimaro and, and a lot of people that brought Mencia uh, to our attention. And the mm. grape um, is a, a fantastic uh, early ripening red from the Galicia district of Spain, the northwestern part of Spain. And there we found a lot of similarities between that region of the world and, and the gorge in the sense that um, Galicia also has uh, a fair maritime influence from the Atlantic Ocean. And to, to its east is a hot desert district of the Rioja and Ribeiro del Duero and such. And, mm. and that's not dissimilar to the gorge here where um, the Columbia River allows a strong maritime influence from the Pacific Ocean. But just to our east lies the hotter desert districts. Um, and we're in this transition zone. And, uh, and so with that, and being a, a legitimate cool climate AVA, we selected to graft and to plant a lot of um, Galician varietals uh, from Spain, like Mencia, Godeo, Albarino, uh, Trousseau, which it's it's known you know as Trousseau in Eastern France, but it's grown as Maranzao in mm. in Galicia. Um, that those are a little bit of the influences. Uh, as to how we chose the varietals that we grow and how to separate ourselves. Nice. Mm -hmm. And how, how many acres, uh, by the way, of grapes do you have? Well, we we have we just have fifteen right now um, and do on you, the property. Do you, use, do you use all of that in your winemaking, or do you sell that as well? We do. Yeah. Yeah. We a we little both. Oh, you well, use it all. You use it all. <laughs> we we just started we just started selling you know a, a ton last year and maybe two tons this year uh, to some friends and um, might do more of that in the future. But so far, uh, we've been able to absorb all the fruit that we've grown and we have taken a slow approach to growth. As I mentioned before, we just um, would maybe plant two or three acres at a time and then skip a year and then two or three more acres and skip a year because uh it was you know i've, I've been told by other people like oh you know you you make your mistakes small you know and, and you know don't, <laughs> right. don't think that there won't be any mistakes and learnings you know just just do it at a smaller scale so right. each time you change and evolve you can learn and grow and do it better and that's exactly what's happened um I can look at all the blocks we planted and see our our evolution and our improvement. And yeah, we, you know, we this this was uncharted area. We we didn't know the spacing. We didn't know the vigor. We didn't know um, these varietals. And so right. there was a lot of a lot of unknowns. And in the wine industry, I think it's pretty easy to sit back. With, with a glass of wine in your hand and, and sipping it and critique it all, all the way back, you know, about how, how it could be better or softer or finer or more ripe or less ripe or whatever. But at the time of creation and at the time of planting, you didn't, I didn't know what these tannins were going to be like. I didn't know the fruit profile or the flavor development or, or anything. And right. um, so... So it's it's good good to remember that. It's good to remind remind others of that too. I mean, you bring up some really good points. I mean, it is so there's so many elements that go into planting and 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 how that ultimately determines where you plant, what the soil is like, and what the soil you know the sociobiome of the soil is like, and what the you know as well as the geology, so the biology and the chemistry, and then yeah, how you space and how you allow for the growth of those vines to you know allow different kinds of ripening to control you know tannin development or you know flavor development in different ways there's so many of these little things that if it's a grape you haven't worked with a lot and if you haven't you know it, you, a site that you haven't worked with with that grape yeah. there are so many factors to to observe and and play with initially that it's like yeah it 
it is really that's a really good point i, I mean that I, yeah i think a lot of people could just simplify like you said on the glass end of things and not realize like hey you know real world here um there's a lot going on a lot to yeah. but I mean, this idea, I think, is a really just such there's so much wisdom in that plant and observe, you know, there's so much allow time for observation is, it, is mm-hmm. what it sounds like you're saying uh, in any new venture like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, I mean, that's one of the things that makes the wines from Europe so beautiful is that there's so many generations of observation, you know, right. there's so much time of, of understanding and thought and experience. So, um just like in so many ways uh, here in North America, we're, we're just newer to a lot of these things. And um, so we don't have that depth of history and certainly viticulture in Oregon. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a few outliers where some very old vineyards, um, like a hundred year old vineyard in the Dalles up here. But other than that, you know, it's, it's in the late sixties and early seventies where things start. And, um, you only get one shot each year and, and right. a vineyard, you know, it, it's, um, you just have certain, certain restrictions, um, for plant availability and things like that. So, uh, we, we really stepped into it and leaned into it, um, quite a bit when we sourced some original budwood from UC Davis and, and really wanted to do something that hasn't been done before and um and i'm i'm just thrilled about how how much you know uh true character i could say varietal character comes through it it does have an expression of the varietal and it does have an expression of Mosher. that's fantastic yeah it's do you think that we live in a world now that doesn't have the patience for refinement that sort of <laughs> generational refinement mm-hmm. Well, certainly things seem to be moving exponentially quicker. <laughs> um, and but but that's on the cultural side. On yeah. on on the natural side, things still move with the season. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and so no matter how how much we want to try to refine things and learn, we are we are tethered and yoked to the the slow pace of the agricultural rhythm. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I love about, I guess, um, what we do here is that it's, it's tied to agriculture. It, we can only grow so much. We can only, you know, produce so much per year. And, um, and that, that's the beauty of wine. That's just not us, you know, right. But, but I, I can see the quickening pace of the technological side and the sales side and the customers inquiries um and all the advancements of software that our business depends upon but yet at its core foundation it's it's far it's the farm outside so that's why we focus on building the soils and that's our main that's our main focus and purpose because that you know that saying that um slow is smooth and smooth is fast Mm -hmm. i think the fastest way we get to where we want to be is is by being diligent with the slow and disciplined work of feeding the soil and enlivening the soils um, because the vines will respond and then produce the fruit and then we'll have the wine yeah yeah i love that a lot um how did you i know you've talked a little bit about your original experience working in a conventional vineyard but were there other things that drew you to the kind of farming that you're doing and 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 what was it when you had that first exposure to biodynamics that that sort of uh, tripped the trigger for you? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I'm appreciating our conversation a lot, Adam. And um, and one one of the things that I remember so clearly was biodynamics presented to me the value of the intangibles. Mm. There, there's so much in life that can't be measured, that can't be seen. Um, that, you know, science can't, uh, you know, work a hypothesis around, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but, but it's, it's the joy of life. It's the pleasure. It's the connection of relationship. 
it's the love that you have for for others it's the beauty that you see in nature that's exhibited it's it's a felt sense and um that just because they're not measured or explicitly spoken to very often they often get overlooked and um but biodynamics allowed me to to see and understand better and more clearly the the impact of intention and um the perhaps the the communication between uh the soil and vines and trees and how how kind of the bigger organism and diversity can work together um without without a a, a reduction in focus you know it's almost you, with biodynamics you, your scale and and viewpoint needs to get bigger and take more and more and more in to see a greater you know a greater whole than try to um take this part and that part and that part and reduction oriented approach to try and to understand it yeah how how are you seeing that on your farm i mean are you seeing yeah i, I like i'll leave it at that i guess i I could lead you in the direction of a couple of things, but I'll just leave it at that. How do you see some of these bigger connections uh, playing out? Mm. Well, you know, working with agriculture, you are immediately humbled on realizing <laughs> um, that you're you're in a system that is way beyond your <laughs> your ability to control mm. or. And I'm I'm not going to say that we don't have impact because we do. I can yeah. that that's a kind of a little bit of a a similar point that I could talk to a little bit later. But just the idea of what culture brings to agriculture and yeah. and you know the identity of the farm. But um, but in, in terms of how I see our farm in a biodynamic perspective, I can I can see the importance of the wild areas and how the wildlife moving through the vineyard um, enrich it. And I can see how, you know, the taller trees of the orchard can, um, can break the wind of the vines that are just downwind of it, you know, and how that yeah. interfaces. I can, I can taste in the Grenache how the inter-row plantings of lavender um, and their oils you know, waft and, and get on to the skins of the grapes and, and taste it. So I can see that dynamic at play. Uh, I can see the, the health of the vines. I mean, we planted all the vines here and, and now I can see how healthy they are and the uniformity of the, um, the clusters that are produced. Um, and I can see that across the different soil types. So I, I can see how the different subsoils um, are, are working and, and impacting the certain flavors of these blocks. Um, and, and then I, you know, each vintage has certain character. And this vintage, the 2022 vintage, was a lot of maritime influence. So it was very cool and and full of moisture mm. whereas other vintages are more continental all the heat and hot air come from the east and it just bakes right. and um and so i can see those characters in in the fruits uh so it's in those ways that i i look at a, a larger picture and and it's all captured within the wines themselves i want to ask with the lavender this this really excites my imagination in a way that I, I'm I'm curious why you interplanted rose with lavender first of all, but and if there are other things that you've interplanted, and and if that's an intentional attempt to infuse the grapes in a way, uh, because that 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 intrigues me as something that somebody might do of planting specific really beautiful things like lavender that might ha obviously have a, an oil that would get on a grape and create an interesting flavor in a wine and and you're not actually flavoring the wine but in a sense you are like i i don't know so can you talk a little bit about that yeah absolutely it's it's creating a sense of place you know and i know that yeah. that's it's a common term 
but you know, I think that the uh, you know every winery would like to think that what they're growing on their property is is unique to their property, and you just can't go around the corner or the next valley or the next state and and get that thing. And and so therefore, what do you do to your property to make it unique? You know, how do you make your property simultaneously one big organism, but yet have a sense of individuality? Mm-hmm. That's just that's just that place. And so you um, by by trying to to bring together those those both polarities, um, you you have a strong ability to to capture um, that that sense of place. And with in terms of the lavender, there's a couple of different reasons. First and foremost, um, attracting beneficial insects all year long, and or not all year long, but um, during the growing season. And they're very drought tolerant. And we planted, you know, every eight rows of grapes, we had one row of lavender, you know, eight mm-hmm. rows of grapes and one row of lavender. And it's on this south facing hillside, which is along um, a long road, a beautiful agricultural road coming up that divides the property in two. And, and so in the summertime, you have beautiful chartreuse green foliage of the grapevines. You have golden uh, colored grasses on the hills that have dried out. And then you have these bright, deep purple rows of lavender. And so it's, it's an agricultural art, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's art in the lag landscape. And we, we've planted um, a lot of forsythia that have beautiful yellow flowers and other, other deep um, colorings of the landscape because of the aesthetic beauty. Um, yeah. So th- those are a couple of reasons. And, and of course, the obvious one is to, you know, how, how will that influence the wine? What will that, what will that be like? And um, yeah. Grenache and, and lavender are often found together in, in Provence. And um, those, those flavors and those aromas exist together and, and are quite beautiful. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm I'm just fascinated because I think it's the first time this idea also of of the aesthetic of the vineyard has come up on the podcast where it's you know maybe we need to think more about that. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say about that? What what I mean I I just remember I don't know if anybody if you've maybe seen that documentary The Biggest Little Farm um, mm-hmm. about you know that one um, but there's uh, it was Alan York who who was a biodynamic consultant and and came to work in a lot of vineyards here on the West coast. And, and he said, you know, they asked him, why, why did you design the the orchard at this farm? Like in the way that you did with these concentric circles, was that because it was sort of like a, a knoll and you wanted to, you know, capture the water. And he was like, yes, but also because it looks good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the aesthetic, aesthetic, uh, landscape. I mean, that, that is, again, that's, that's one of those intangibles, you know, we just see, see a piece of art, you're moved by that. And mm-hmm. when it, when it can be in an agricultural or natural landscape setting, um, it's, it's very effective. And I think on the other side of that, you can take it too far to where your need for beautiful aesthetics leads you to strip spray you know roundup or glyphosate underneath you know to have these you know sharp lines and edges and clean look and so you you really that that then so that when that comes back to your intention okay well if your intention is to make it beautiful what you know what are your other intentions what are you what are you maybe compromising because you're asserting of what you want to look beautiful um I don't know if I'm I'm making sense there, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's a that's a really great question. Yeah, I I mean I'm glad you brought that up because there is that sense of like, oh well, this looks nice, and it's like basically a, a you know a sterilized <laughs> laboratory <laughs> instead of a vineyard, um, you know, kill, you know where like you said it's strip sprayed with glyphosate and and yeah everything is uh, neat and tidy, but. Um, maybe there's a deep, deeper meaning to beauty there that needs to be explored or deeper definition for it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we often, 
um, are all guilty in some ways of doing something with, um, you know, inadvertent or, or just unrecognized uh, negativities, you know, or um, extra negative externalities is the word I was looking for. And we're so focused on what, what we want in this case is it for it to look good and be clean and tidy, but um, the harm that we're doing to get it there really needs to be pointed out. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, the winemaking and how this sense of the land translates uh, how, or how you try to translate it through the winemaking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like to use the term, a couple of terms, and, and it's about relationship. Um, uh, relationship and, and, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier about uh, what it, what it means to be a vigneron, and yeah. and so I can extend that to how that impacts the wine. Is is my my relationship with the grapes and the wines are extended over a, a very long time, you know, the whole season. And so when I'm thinking about tannin level and um, or color or um, uh, preserving delicate aromatics or uh, maintaining higher acidities in the grapes, you know, all those are impacted through my choices in the vineyard. And so it really gives um, a chance for, for creating that wine that, that starts, say, in April, you know, when you're thinning or, um, you know, considering leaf coverage or whatever. And and so it's that similar, it's that same consciousness or approach and care and attention that we have um, provided or expended on the grapes and the wines um, for for nine months each vintage, and and the our dedication to um, choosing to reinforce life forces in the vineyard. Throw so we'll we'll generally spray more. Um, immune boosting teas and sprays rather than disease suppressing sprays right, right. and so we're, we're choosing diversity we're, when we believe in resiliency through diversity rather than trying to um, limit the organisms that are that are present in the vineyard and and so we're, we're building those populations of yeast we're, we're creating a nice context uh, the proper context in which the yeast can thrive in the vineyard and on the clusters. So, because we depend upon those when they come into the winery and, um, all the wines are, uh, you know, native yeast ferments or, you know, from, from this property or ambient from the cellar and the fermentations will, will generally start on their own. We, we often create, um, we'll pick something uh, quite early, a red and a white quite early, uh, maybe like two weeks before we anticipate harvest really starting in Ernst. And we will create a pied de cuve or a small ferment that um, we can closely monitor and sensorially evaluate and, and create it to where the best it can be, to where that will be um, the source of inoculation for the other fruits that come into the cellar. Yeah. How do you do that? That's a really cool, uh, I mean, this is just something I would love to dig into because I don't think I've ever talked about it, but I have recommended it and (laughs) I would love to dig in technically if you're open to how you prepare those pita coups or, I mean, do you start with multiple and then narrow it down based on aromatic, you know, cleanliness and, and vibrancy or, or how does that, yeah. I mean, what's your process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, it's, um, you know, it's, it's nothing proprietary and it's nothing <laughs> really, really special, you know, it is just, um, you, you can go out to the vineyard and, and if, if you're very familiar with the blocks, you can, you know, pick an area where you feel like um, the fruit is optimal. And it, it's generally, since it's earlier before harvest, you kind of go to a riper spot, you know, and get right. get the sugars up a little bit. Um, but 
you know, we often pick when the bricks are in the teens. Um, yeah. And, and therefore the pH is lower, uh, the acidities are higher. So you have less uh, potential for contamination and mm -hmm. microbiology going sideways. And it's also a smaller volume. So you can tend to it a little bit closer and easily and heat it if it needs to be heated or cooled uh, to where, again, you're just creating the right context for these yeast to thrive. Mm. Um, and you're tasting and that also, it kind of just gets the spirit of harvest going, you know, suddenly you can, you can smell the ferment in the cellar and, you know, you're cleaning stuff and you've used the press and in the event that they're whites or whatever, um, maybe you've used the press on a small lot and, and so forth. Um, um, and from, from there, you know, you just watch the fermentation and generally Saccharomyces and favorable Saccharomyces, uh, you know, their population is ideal when the ferment is, you know, below 10 bricks or so. And um, so you wait till it goes down and then, then you know you have a good population and you start harvest and you bring the first fruit in and, and go ahead and pitch. Um, in this case, it'd just be white, you know, and whites. And, and then the first press, um, after you've pressed into the tank, you'd pitch a little bit of this uh, pied de couve that you have and and then you're able to reduce that that vulnerable that the time period that the wine's so vulnerable um yeah. you know before after it's pressed and and before the fermentation is going uh the wine can be exposed and um to a lot of things and and so it's just a nice way to to keep them safe nice. are you are you doing these in sort of like food grade five gallon buckets is that no no we generally we 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 like to use stainless stainless so okay in the case yeah we'll use um you know 30 gallon barrels or uh 60 gallon stainless barrels okay okay uh, and and that that works well because it's a it's a tight container and again um the metal is a great conductor so we can put them out in the sunshine if we need to heat them up or gotcha. them in the cellar, yeah. cool them down or, um, and, okay. and then it, it's more neutral as well. Uh, the stainless is, yeah. you know, sanitation is important at that point. And, and are, are you doing multiples in case one goes off into a bad direction or we, we generally don't. Um, we've okay. been fortunate that, uh, um, you know, we don't have a lot of things go go off in bad directions, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, nice. it's always a possibility. And and so I understand that you know redundancy is good, but we'll we might have one white and maybe two reds or something like that. Gotcha. Um, and are are you excluding oxygen by any means, like you know, whether it's a dry ice or anything like that, or just pumped in CO two? We, other... we do, yeah, yeah. We are. Okay. Our winemaking is generally um, many steps to in a more reductive style. So we exclude oxygen, um, and especially in, in that vulnerable period, you know, pre-fermentation. Yeah. So uh, maybe a little inert gas on top, yeah. or in the case of reds, a little um, uh, dry ice or, you know, CO2 on top of the ferment. Yeah, okay. And you're right, um... Yeah, I mean, that's just the obvious thing that I, I hadn't even talked about before, but you're right, because you are picking those grapes before the main harvest. They are naturally lower pH, <laughs> which is naturally protective, it gives you that extra security in terms of some of those spoilage microorganisms as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's yeah, just a, the, by virtue of the, that process, it's naturally conducive to a cleaner ferment naturally. Um yeah, thank you for sharing all that. I just wanted to dig into that for I, yeah. I, I've when I've brought it up before. I know I've gotten a few questions, and it is sort of a mysterious process until you you know figure out your own process. So just any input like that, I think, is really helpful for people who are doing this themselves and want to you know try to know how to do it in a good way. Um, good. Yeah, I hope I hope that is helpful. You know, I've I've been helped so many times. There's there's been. Um, so many mentors and, and 
my life that I've appreciated learning from. And if I can be that to anyone else, I'd, I'd be happy to do so. And do you have a tasting room there at Analemma? Can people come visit you, stay there? What, what What's going on in terms of experiencing you <laughs> and your wines? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, we do. Yeah, we have a wonderful um, kind of outdoor area for seated tastings and a small tasting room um, that is part of our winery. So it's an inside outside setting. We also have picnic tables in, in the orchard that's just immediately outside the winery uh, amongst the cherry trees. So um, that is really popular. And we have several places around the property that are set up to um, just be secluded and a little private and um, capture the beauty of the property. So, uh, you know, little um, benches and embankments uh, that are nestled near the vineyards, or we have a particularly gorgeous vista area where you can overlook the Mosier Valley and we have some chairs and uh, seating up there. And I think one of our, one of our, um, most popular and impactful offerings is our exploratory field tasting where guests can join us for a walk around the farm and we carry um, you know five or six bottles of wine with us and glasses and we taste the wines out in the vineyard um, from where those wines are made and we talk about um, how we farm and what we do and why we do what we do and share those wines in that context. And it's very powerful. Hmm. That sounds yeah. lovely. And it looks from your website, like there are some beautiful views. You have a sort of a nice elevated uh, aspect to, to some of the land there. Is that right? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. It's, um, it's a unique property and it's situated in the Mosier Valley on a South facing bench. Um, so so most of the valley sits to the south of us, and we're on this ridge looking south. Um, and behind us, I say, like if we were if we were looking south, then to the north of us, the hill kind of falls away down to the Columbia River, and so we are perched up on this little hilltop um, that provides a lot of nice views and is in in the area where the the wind comes through the gorge as well and mm. but each of our vineyard blocks is very distinct and unique in and of itself you know and i mentioned to you earlier i spent a lot of time out there pruning or driving the tractor or walking and each block has its own feel whether mm. it's the, the steepness of the hillside or the the view from the blocks up top or whether it's the the lush oaks and forested boundaried area of of the lower block um or to the windswept you know block in the corner that's on an angle and a side hill so they're, they're all really unique and and it's just a pleasure to to experience them all and um and and get to know their their unique contributions uh and to the overall wines that we have nice mm -hmm. and and it does look like you somebody could potentially taste some pinot noir that you make as well it's not oh not absolutely not, yeah yeah <laughs> it's not and excluded yeah it's just you have a lot right. of other good stuff going on that's right. You know, I, I like I like the idea of transcending and including. And so, <laughs> yeah, we need to include the, those popular varietals of, of Oregon. Um, so we do make a Pinot and Chardonnay. Ironically, they come from Washington State, uh, <laughs> which, which is fun. But we've mentioned the, the Bi-State AVA here. And, yeah, we've, um, we've been working with Oak Ridge Vineyard. Uh, for the past 11 years, and they grow great Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir and Gewürztraminer. And um, so we bottle up some of those varietals in addition to what we have here at the estate. Great. And uh, how, how is the best way for people to find out more and get in touch? Oh, well, um, I would point them to our website at analemmawines.com. And 
if you're in the area here, we would love to host and meet you. And so you can look at our um, visits tab and choose from the experiences we offer. Our hospitality season is, um, since it's outside oriented, it's mainly from you know March through October. Uh, so things are quiet right now, but, um, and, but we're always, we're always here and welcome phone calls and email inquiries, uh, all the time. And we're a very transparent operation and educationally oriented. So we like to share what we're doing in hopes of it, um, generating inspiration for others and in whatever way possible. I love that. And that's uh, Analemma Wines, plural, and Analemma spelled A-N-A-L-E-M-M-A, two M's, analemmawines.com. Um, thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate this conversation and getting to know about you and what you're doing there. Uh, any closing words? Well, I, I can say the same to you, Adam. It's been a pleasure <laughs> speaking with you, and I really appreciate you um, in the in the podcasting world and and um, bringing, bringing these voices to a broader community. I think it's really valuable and important. And so hats off to you for doing your part. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing the work and giving me, giving me uh, some beautiful examples of things to talk about. It's a real, real pleasure to uh, know you're out there doing that. So thank you for that. Hey there, if you remember nothing else from the Organic Wine Podcast, my hope is that you'll take the following three ideas into the cogitating, ruminating, contemplating space in your life. Number one, we are all connected and our individuality, our egos are mostly an illusion. Number two, we are in a process of constant learning and changing that never ends. And number three, there are much more important things to a relationship than whether we agree about some ideas. I'd like to focus on those things that connect us. Thank you for connecting with me.